As humans, there are going to be moments in our lives where we feel very different. And one of the privileges about living in America is that you can actually share that and speak openly about that. But what if you live in a country where it's not safe to come out or it's not safe to have doubts and questions about your upbringing? Today, we welcome our very first episode of Toxic Masculinity with our therapist, Jack Lamb. Pronouns they them. It's important to have this dialogue and have this conversation because oftentimes toxic masculinity is one of those ethereal things that we think of as a theory but never actualize as a concept. And in this season of Yellow Chair Collective, the podcast season three, we thought it would be important to humanize this topic of toxic masculinity by starting out with our very first therapist episodes so that you acknowledge that you're not alone. This is Beliefs Behind the Scenes with our therapist to help you understand your own identity and how to unlearn toxic masculinity. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Here is our conversation with Jack Lamb. I want to ask you this first question in the very beginning. What do you think of our season's topic? Like, what are your opening thoughts? I'm very excited because I think this is something that is much needed as a conversation, especially how wide-reaching its impacts are. I think a lot of the times we definitely talk about it, impact on men and men who embody toxic masculinity, but we don't see the ripple effects of kind of how this culture of toxic masculinity affects so much more than just men. Who do you think it affects that we don't talk about enough? And women and non non-binary folks, trans folks. I think a lot of the conversation around toxic masculinity tends to be about how men can't express their feelings and emotions, which yeah, I think it's pretty difficult and definitely worth talking about, but the secondary impacts of that, right? The fact that because men can't talk about their feelings or are or are unwilling to talk about their feelings, how does that translate into pent-up aggression towards women? How does that channel into queer phobia and the violence we see against trans bodies, queer bodies, and yeah. the insecurity that it breeds that leads to so much more harm in different communities. How did you experience toxic masculinity growing up? My dad has always been my model for what masculinity is. And for the longest time, I was someone who wanted to, as I think any child does, the validation. I wanted the validation and acceptance of my dad, the love of my dad. So what he wanted for me, things like playing basketball, golfing, being good at sports in general, all of the things that I really tried hard to kind of embody. Mm. And then, of course, failed because that wasn't really what my interests were. And that 
kind of brought me a lot of guilt. So I understand, right, the pressures of wanting to be this societally acceptable, conventional, masculine person. Hmm. But I think about the fact that, like, if I wasn't queer, it might have been a lot harder, right? If I was trying to date cis heterosexual women who might also be taught through mainstream media a lot of the times of what a man, the ideal man should be like, right? Which is oftentimes I think in the media that we were shown in Malaysia, men tend to be stoic, silent, unexpressive, just all around quite, there's this kind of almost trope of the cool, silent guy, the more the less you speak, the cooler you are. <laughs> if you are not my friend that way. <laughs> I'm definitely not like that at all. Can I tell you a story? For sure. When I was in college, I saw my first like example of what an American bro was. Like, bro. And they were so loud. And I'm Filipina American and my dad was always so quiet, except when he was around his friends. So when I was in college, like to see a guy be that way with everyone, that was almost like a culture shock for me, even though I grew up in Los Angeles. And what I know about you is that you grew up in Malaysia, you came here for college, you lived in Fullerton a little bit, and then you went to Texas for grad school. You have a lived experience that not many people have. Being an international student, being genderqueer, someone who experienced America as an adult versus as a child. And for people that don't know or understand Malaysian culture, can you give a context about what it's like to live in Malaysia and then tell the story about how you moved here and what that was like? I would say two things. I think one, there is a very distinct experience being Malaysian Chinese because we have this thing especially being a Malaysian Chinese man, there's this stereotype that is very prevalent of the Chinese businessman mentality. So basically what that means is like the man's role is providing for your family, making money. That's pretty much it, right? And wow. of course, that leads to a lot of problems. Like a lot of my friends and I grew up in this space where we've seen a lot of our parents and our friends' parents' marriages fall apart, whether it's in secret or publicly, because of course there's still a lot of shame around divorce. Mm. We see them fall apart because the dads tend to be very unfulfilled and unsatisfied with their relationship because, well, they don't really speak, right? They don't really talk about what they want, what they need. It's more so dictated by the, this family structure and they're kind of acting as if that their responsibility is to provide and they internalize that. And so they seek out a lot of other like extramarital affairs, right? When we talk about like the Chinese businessman mentality, it's kind of the very common like argument they'll come back with is like, I already did my job. I've provided for you. I gave you kids. I pay for the house. What else do you want from me? Why does it matter that I'm having like these affairs? Why does it matter that I'm like doing all of this? Like it genuinely, I think sometimes it genuinely baffles them that like 
the wives request for a divorce because they're like, I don't know what else you want. You already have everything that I'm supposed to give you. So that's the first thing that I think of when I think of like a Malaysian Chinese masculinity. You already brought up so many points that I'm like, we have to dig into these. So, okay. Three things you mentioned that I was like, okay, within the topic of toxic masculinity, there's so much we can talk about if we even just like touch on these things. Because I don't think that the Chinese Malaysian story is ever talked about in American media. Like you literally have to search for this to understand. Like, yeah. So it's them having affairs is with the expectation that the wives are just supposed to take take it. I don't think they ever really expect, of course, for the wives to find out. But it's more so like, well, if they do, what are they going to do? Because I'm the provider of the house. How did that affect you as a child, like growing up with friends whose parents were like divorcing under the table? Your parents aren't divorced, are they? No. So my parents are together, but it did affect my family in the sense that I think for me, I wasn't really aware of what was going on because there's a lot of shame, right? Especially with my friends. I do have friends who have this exact situation play out in their families. And some of them do end up getting, having their parents be divorced. And some of them, they just live like that where, you know, the dad won't agree to divorce. And so they have to put up a front because it is also very shameful thinking about being in a collective culture and sharing the fact that like, oh, my husband has been cheating on me and being with other women and being unfaithful. And now we have to separate because, yeah, in collectivist cultures, people talk and you want to keep up a front. We have this term that always comes up of like saving faith. And as a child growing up, this is also something that really you're cognizant of because you're, you know that your behaviors, what you do, what you say, doesn't just reflect on you, it reflects on your family. So for me, when I'm thinking about toxic masculinity, kind of bringing it back and how that affected me as I'm seeing all of this play out is that when I started understanding or getting this realization that I might be queer, right? At the time, maybe gay, that I'm attracted to men. How old were you? I was probably, I want to say maybe 10 or 11. You were 10 and 11. And this was around the time when your dad was trying to get you into sports and like all of that stuff. <laughs> I feel like that has been like my whole life more so. But oh, 11 was when I realized. Did you keep it to yourself or were you pretty open about talking about it at the time? No, I definitely no. kept it to myself for years, it was impossible to talk about. And that was kind of what really destroyed my mental health because as I said, you know, you, in the collectivist culture, you are very cognizant of what people think of how what you do and what you say impacts not just you, but your family. And so in my mind, if I love my parents, if mm -hmm. I love my mom and if I love my dad, how could I ever live authentically you know how could I ever speak about who I am inside 
because that means in at the time for me what i understood is that means my parents have failed because they raised a faulty child so you at like that age you were like something's wrong with me that i'm feeling this way yeah absolutely i mean no one else was talking about it when no one else was represented in our culture it was kind of something that was more like derisive we had this very very derogatory term toward like i would say queer folks in general but especially specifically like trans women we call them like lady boys well you know even though i was never really talked about like that i've seen how queer people were treated right with absolutely no respect with derision you know like they were just almost like garbage the way that the heteronormative people would talk about them i remember thinking about adam lambert at the time coming to perform in kl this was super interesting because my brother was a huge fan of adam lambert and he was openly gay he was an openly gay contested on American Idol and yet a Malaysian tour, which was so shocking because Malaysia is an Islamic country and homosexuality is very illegal. And yeah, I think we did go see him, but we weren't aware that like throughout the whole performance, there was a whole protest outside the stadium just for him performing there. And I remember once in a car ride his song came up coming on the radio too and one of my parents i can't remember who now said something that was really homophobic right like oh i can't believe they played this on the radio or something like that so through all of these messages it's kind of like you understand what you're supposed to do and not supposed to do as a man right especially as an upstanding hmm. man in malaysian society my voice is cracking a little bit and and feeling a little sadness for your for like what the 10-year-old version of you was feeling internally at that time how did you start to become aware and unlearn these patterns as a child brings me back to when you had asked me the question of what the context of the culture is over there one thing that really helped me in my thoughts on its daily Western media, fortunately and unfortunately, in a, in a little bit of ways, right? Because fortunately, because you know, I had never been able to see a life for myself living authentically as a gay person in Malaysia, being a gay Chinese person. And so when I started getting, and you know, Western media is very global. Like Hollywood, you can, you watch Hollywood movies everywhere and Malaysia is no different. Plus we also had a, you know, that pirating. So we could watch really any American show one <laughs> or British shows that we wanted. <laughs> so, That's incredible. Yeah. And I remember as a kid, I was 11 or 12 and I would just literally Google like gay TV show characters. Mm -hmm. And... <laughs> 
I would watch like YouTube compilations of like gay characters. And then I would like download all the shows. And uh, most of the shows were either British or American, right? Like Curtis Folk, Will and Grace. And it's really sad because one of the actors from Will and Grace just passed away. Leslie Jordan. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, those are the kinds of people that, you know, even though I, I had my influence of like Malaysian Chinese society, I also had, thankfully, in a way, the influence of Western media and these representations, even though they were really minor, it wasn't as widespread as it is now, that I could cling on to because these were kind of examples of, wow, so I can have a life as a gay person. And like, I, I can live because for the longest time, I really didn't see a way that I could. So even as I was severely depressed, very suicidal, going through a lot of my teen years, what kept me alive for the biggest part is thinking about, wow, I think if I did go to America or if I did go to a, a country where it is more accepted, that maybe I have a chance of being able to live authentically. When I think of Jack Lamb, I think of someone that just embodies themselves to the fullest. And I think my intention in asking these questions is I want people to see that they're, you've done the work too, you know? So you were feeling this way throughout childhood. You had this idea of if I can just like keep myself alive, I might have a shot of living my authentic self if I went to America. Is that why you went to America? Not necessarily. I think internally that was why I came to America. <laughs> Externally, <laughs> things Officially. lined up really well because my siblings, I, my older siblings had already come over. Both my parents were educated in America. And so they had always wanted for us to experience having an education outside of Malaysia. So it just kind of fell into place. It was really opportune that it was always the plan that when I was 18, I guess from a quote with my parents that they wanted to send me overseas. So in a way, I left out and think about that a lot, how much of a privilege it is to be able to have been born into a family and born into a life where that was possible for me because otherwise I don't know if I would have still been alive. And then you come here and then how does the mental health journey and the healing journey start for you? Oh, honestly, it was interesting because I had always thought like when I came here, it would be like amazing. It would be like perfect. Everything would be <laughs> solved right and I, I i do think that a lot of the times that also happens with mental health of like if we just change one thing everything will fall into place and everything will be perfect when of course it doesn't work like that was the one thing like moving here was that you're like that's gonna change my entire life i'm gonna be perfect i'm gonna yeah yeah i had associated growing up in that environment oh, malaysia malaysian chinese culture is so homophobic what I saw in Western media, they're so accepting, nobody bats an eye. Like, 
perfect. So, but when I came here, I remember distinctly my sister and brother-in-law picking me up from the airport. And the first thing that they told me was like, oh, you know, you're 18 now. So we feel like you deserve to know that your brother is gay. And I was so frozen in shock at the time because we were in the car. And I was like, oh, my God. Okay. And they had said, oh, well, if you're gay too, you know, you can let us know. And I had never come out to my family or anything like that. So I was like sitting there in like silence for what felt like forever <laughs> to be like, do I say it? Do I say it? And just as I think I was about to, you know, come out to my sister and brother-in-law, I think it was, one of them said, I mean, we prefer if you weren't, but it's okay if you are. And then I was like, okay, well, I guess I will not. And even though that was the case, once I started going to college, I was very open with all of my friends. I guess I started being out very openly gay, co-founded a club with some of my friends, queer people of color, just to talk about our identities and experiences. And I really think that helped me work through a lot because I had always struggled in Malaysia with being queer, like that queer aspect of my identity. But then coming to America was when I started struggling with the idea of like, oh, I am a racial, I'm a marginalized racial group. Weird, because while well, you know, most people in Malaysia are Asian. So I never really experienced that side of it. So it was kind of like eye-opening in that sense. Oh, and now I'm not just dealing with queer phobia, I'm also dealing with racism, <laughs> the intersectionalities and all of the little intricacies that kind of come with that. Why did it shock you that your brother and sister told you in that moment? It was more shocking in the sense of hearing that from my sister and my brother-in-law that I wasn't expecting to hear that from another family member. You know, I think it's someone from the community. I feel a little bit more understanding of how personal that is, and especially going up in a country where you could get killed for sharing that. And so to hear them openly saying it was so jarring to me because it took me a long time to say it, even just to myself. And when I heard them saying it so casually and about my brother, especially since, you know, I didn't hear it. I haven't heard it then from my brother himself that it was jarring. You put it into such perfect context for people to hear. It's that in other countries, you could get killed if you said you were gay or if you said you were trans, if you said you were lesbian. There's a lot more that people don't understand about people's individual stories because yours is is you is your own it's jack's story and like this is such a perfect segue into the reason why toxic masculinity is poisonous because you lived in this depressed state for so long you were suicidal and then for the first time in your life, you hear your brother-in-law and sister say, by the way, your brother's gay. And like that statement in itself, if you, if an American heard that versus if someone from Malaysia heard that, there are two very different 
reactions. And then here you were as someone who was just starting out their journey in America. Hearing this, you're, you go on this like year-long journey of figuring out what that means for you. And the intersectionality of that. Being an immigrant, being an international student, like being racialized. Like, can you tell me what you learned in those circles that just like helped you process your journey? Yeah, I think one of the things that compared to me as well, moving here wasn't a quick fix for my depression and suicidality. Even though it did help a lot, I will say that being able to finally have been open about my sexuality with people who were also open about their sexualities really, I guess the community aspect of it really helped me feel more welcome and less alone. Because right? that was a big feeling when I was in Malaysia was I'm faulty, I'm the only one like this, all my friends are straight. Why am I like and coming to terms with the other aspects of my identity was then seeing, right, and these are things that, again, why I think representation is so important, is then I finally started realizing, wow, actually, I think it was also when, it was also when I started trying to date, because I've never been able to do that back in Malaysia, and seeing on the dating apps queer people being racist to other queer people, right? Kind of like a lot of the terms that we used back then and hopefully no one uses anymore, but still does show up uh, of like, you know, they say no rice, no spice, no fat. Different microaggressions of like, oh, you know, I'm usually not into Asians, but you're kind of cute. Or, and this is more recent maybe more so with like the k-pop boom of like oh i really want a k-pop boyfriend or a cute little you know all of these things that like fetishize dehumanize or desexualize and like all of these things that reduce us to less than a full human being so that was kind of everything that i came to terms with and i'm still you know a lot of the time kind of processing I've lost the question. That's okay. How are you doing in like sharing your story? Like what's um, the overall feeling and like, where's your heart at right now? It's nice to talk about it. And a lot yeah. of it does feel very like reflective, I guess. You share your story in a way that gives context to what you went through mentally. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as to how like you ended up on the career of wanting to become a genderqueer Asian therapist. How did you get there? When I was in Queer People of Color in community college, I learned a lot about these kinds of experiences and the intersectionality of all of these things that make life harder for our communities. Toxic masculinity being, of course, a big one. Yeah. And then when I got to university, I transferred to UCLA. It was amazing because I got to meet a lot more friends and a lot more trans folks who were Asian. 
queer, non-binary folks who are Asian. And that kind of was when I started questioning my own gender identity and started on that journey. And that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but then also seeing how all of my friends struggled with their mental health, even though I had what I had thought of living in America as this like utopian, queer, friendly, queer accepting, queer celebratory place was very untrue with, you know, a lot of my friends getting transphobic remarks, not getting support for mental health or not having their experiences even validated and still having the threat of violence against their bodies when they walked on the streets. Seeing a lot of my friends, especially those who are trans, queer folks of color, be unable to thrive in school the way that they could if they weren't discriminated against or had an inclusive environment that was more accommodating, accepting, had the adequate support that they needed. And a lot of them dropped out or had to take extended breaks, had to go through a lot of additional challenges like emancipation, legal challenges, transitions, medically, how to navigate that. And all of that weighed, having weighed so heavily on their mental health. And as I was navigating my own gender journey at the, at the time, I had thankfully had a peer coach. I signed up for a peer coaching program at the school. And that was really when I started feeling like, wow, this is really life-changing work. Trying to do this on my own, trying to find acceptance and comfort in my own identity and body for so long. I didn't realize that I couldn't do it alone. Being able to share that and having someone listen to my experience and affirm it was so powerful. It took away so much shame, but I ultimately, I applied for that job to be a peer coach. So I became a peer coach the next year. After that, I started working at the Suicide Prevention Center. That's kind of how I started my career in mental health because I was suicidal for a long time and I've seen a lot of my friends go through that. So that became a passion of mine. And then realizing I wanted to do more long-term work, more relational, like growing stuff instead of just crisis intervention, which don't get me wrong, I love being in the crisis intervention space. Part of it was also immigration because of my status. I had to continue on with graduate school. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Also had a lot of resentment for that because definitely was not in a great place to enter graduate school. Where were you in that place? I was very comfortable with the job that I had in the suicide center. I felt like I had a lot more to learn. I felt really content. And graduate school was something that was kind of out of my budget. Something that I wish I had a little bit more real world experience before I entered into. But, you know, if I wanted to stay in the country, I would have to start another program. So I did. 
So also something that I've had to contend with because I've had a lot of resentment for the immigration system, honestly. Because that's who, you know, sets the laws and policies of what is and isn't allowed for me. How my body can move, how I can work, how I can labor in this country. So, yeah, I think ultimately that's where, that's how I got to where I am now is being able to accept that, yeah, even though my life in many ways has been restricted and harmed by a lot of different systems, right? The immigration system, gender identity, gender ideals, gender roles, queer phobia, racism, that ultimately I'm still here. I still have community that really supported me through all of this. And I still can be that person mm. that can make that change for other generations or other people that be struggling through similar things. Hmm. Have you had time to really sit and have like a conversation like this? Like really hash it out? In parts, I would say. Yeah. Definitely different sections. Yeah. Uh, everything. But I think this is maybe one of the first few times that I've really like tried or seen it all pieced together, you know? There's the story underneath the story, you know? Jack, we can probably go deeper, but I want to close with, but what are some steps that people listening to this can do if they're just beginning to be an ally or beginning to understand their story? I think one of the things that I've been holding on to recently and something that I feel like really I've learned through being suicidal that life is short and oftentimes meaningless. And because of that, why does it really matter how you want to live your life? And how you choose to live your life. Why does it matter? I, I have a lot of clients who think of wanting more for themselves as being selfish, inconsiderate. Does it harm anyone? I think there's something to be said of kind of really live and let live of why does it matter? If you want to dress a certain way, call yourself by a certain name or pronoun, how does this impact anyone else? If those are the things that make you happy in this life, that ultimately will end one way or another, why not just do things that make you happy if the things that you do, if the things that make you happy are not things that hurt anyone else? And I don't mean like hurt anyone else, like, oh, my parents are going to be upset or I might lose some friends because they might be angry. 
look, you'll always have people who care about you if you live authentically, if you show up for yourself. There's so much that you touched on there. How did you feel about today's conversation? I felt really good. I think I was like really, I, I was very impressed by the way that you were able to kind of guide that conversation and dig into the story and have it even flow so beautifully in a way. Mm -hmm.